0: Now we're paying premium price for below average service, mm-hmm. and we're one of the most expensive in uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, this service is bad. Oh, yeah. and, you know, the more you pay, you expect better service in this. One the problem, the yeah. And like I said, they don't get that train fixed. The buses are either too late or too early. Mm-hmm. They're never really on time. Too crowded. Too. Yeah, that, that's too. And like I said, 25 years I've been taking the bus. I've never seen it this bad. And like I said, the more computers, the worse the service is. Even when you call them on the phone sometimes, they tell you they come at this time and then they come later. They either come early or they come late. So what can you do? You pay premium price, you should get premium service. But it's not like that.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. You may be hearing this show for the first time today over the airwaves of CHUO, the University of Ottawa's radio station, If you were tuning in right now expecting to hear Democracy Now!, please don't be upset. They'll be back here on Monday. Thank you very much to the fine people at CHUO who take local programming seriously and have given us a chance to bring the news to you. Here at the Fulcrum Radio Show, in partnership with CHUO, we are here to become the news that you trust, to give you the stories that you're going to be looking forward to, giving you the news for the weekend with engaging interviews and thoughtful discussions, showcasing a diverse cast of talented writers with voices representing different perspectives, communities, and outlooks. We believe we are the most diverse news show being produced anywhere in the country, and that is something we are very proud of. Now that is quite possibly the longest introduction you'll ever hear me make. On to today's show. Today on the show, we have an interview with Sarah Wright Gilbert. She is a citizen representative on the City of Ottawa's Transit Commission. We also have an interview with Jeff Leeper. He's a city councillor. Emma Williams is in conversation with science educator and communicator Dr. Adam Brown. And John Jarrett, a local Ottawa artist, talks about how his paintings preserve the local uniqueness of Ottawa's ever-changing neighbourhoods. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum's Features Editor, Amira Benjamin, and Fulcrum's staff writer, Desiree Farjum. Welcome to the broadcast.
2: The Canadian Joint Operations Command, led by Lieutenant General Mike Rouleau, developed an initiatives campaign without federal government approval during April 2020 a month after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The campaign utilized similar propaganda techniques used by military forces during the war in Afghanistan. However, Canadian forces acknowledge that these types of operations and targeted policies have limited effect in domestic settings, as they are intended for opposing threats.
3: Students will be heading back to the polls next week for a UOSU by-election. The by-election will seek to fill vacant positions on the University Senate as well as the UOC's Board of Directors and Executive Committee. There are currently two empty seats in the Senate, one for the Faculty of Health Science and one for the Faculty of Education. On the Board of Directors side, there are two available positions in the Faculty of Engineering in addition to an empty seat for the Faculties of Arts, Education, and Common Law. The only available paid position is the role of equity commissioner on the UOSU's executive committee. Students will be called to cast their ballots from October 12th to the 14th. During a Monday press release, the Canadian
2: Conference of Catholic Bishops announced that they were investing $30 million over a five-year period towards local Indigenous projects. Raymond Poussin, president of the CCB, hopes the funds will be used to support the victims of the residential school system. The CCCB issued an apology on Friday, taking responsibility for the traumatic occurrences within residential schools it ran under the federal government more than 100 years ago. However, the church has pledged funds to indigenous communities before, as was the case in 2005, when they agreed to raise $25 million as a part of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Only $4 million was paid by the church. More than 150,000 children were forcibly removed from their homes between 1883 and 1997 and placed in boarding schools with inhumane conditions. They were funded by the Government of Canada and operated by various Catholic churches. The residential schools were declared attempted cultural genocide. There currently have been over 6,000 unmarked graves found in former
3: residential schools across the country. A number of University of Ottawa students reported having issues with the school's vaccination portal. Most of these students were either vaccinated in another province or in another country. Colleen Koki, an international student from France who was vaccinated in the U.S., told the Fulcrum that the university's online tool has only accepted her second dose and refused her first. She has contacted IT services but has yet to hear back. In a statement, the U of O said it is working closely with every student that has reached out for help with the vaccination declaration tool. On Monday, the university's provost, Jill Scott, told the Board of Governors that 96% of staff and 89% of students on campus have declared their vaccination status. In total, 91% of folks on campus are fully vaccinated. Scott expects that number to reach 97% by the start of October. Scott added that the university has started unenrolling students who have not declared their vaccination status and have not been responsive to the university's communications. The provost added that the university is currently focusing on unenrolling, unresponsive students who have courses on campus. She says this is to keep our community safe. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper is leading
2: an advisory committee of a Toronto company arranging the sale of high-quality surveillance equipment to the United Arab Emirates. AWZ Ventures funds Israeli surveillance technology systems, including facial recognition and crowd detective services that provide live, detailed information on people. The French nonprofit organization Forbidden Stories and human rights group Amnesty International conducted a July investigation with the technology. They discovered that hundreds of journalists, politicians, and human rights activists were identifiable from their cell phone numbers. Harper is significantly involved with the firm, serving not only as president of the advisory committee, but also as a business partner. Human rights experts in Canada, the UK, and Israel have found the news concerning and are disappointed with Harper's involvement.
3: The annual Panda Game will be taking place this weekend. This means that students will be celebrating prior to the match on the streets of Sandy Hill. At the UOSU's Board of Directors meeting on September 26th, President Tim Gulliver announced that the union will be providing attendees with a device that aims to protect their drinks from individuals who may have malicious intentions. The student union's president said the UOSU diverted funds from its annual tailgate, which it canceled due to COVID-19, to pay for the device which he first saw on Shark Tank. The union will also have an SUV at Lansdowne Park to escort students who may have been drugged or are suffering from the aftereffects of alcohol. These efforts are aimed at preventing situations where individuals take advantage of drunken students. The Panda Game kicks off at 12 p.m. on Saturday.
1: Thank you, Amira. Thank you, Desiree. The ongoing issues with OC Transpo continue to get worse, as the city's brand-new light rail transit system is currently not in service due to a series of train derailments. Sarah Wright-Gilbert is one of the citizen representatives on the Transit Commission. She's an outspoken critic of OC Transpo, and she joins me now. Hello, Sarah. Thank you very much for taking the time to meet with me.
4: Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Now,
1: for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, what exactly is your role with the Transit Commission?
4: So I am one of four citizen transit commissioners. The transit commission is made up of 12 members total, eight city councillors, and that includes the chair and the vice chair, and four citizen commissioners. We are equal to the uh, city council members in terms of our voting power and decision-making power, Um, but we were appointed to the commission uh, rather than being elected.
1: And what has your experience been like serving on the commission?
4: So when I applied to be on the transit commission my hope was to to fight for, you know, better transit, more equitable transit. For example, charging folks who are, you know, low income for transit passes just to me seemed wrong. You know, I thought there could be a way that we could maybe fix this. And so I had all these hopes and dreams, but then the LRT launched. So the LRT launched in September of 2019 and well, it didn't really go very well from pretty much the beginning when the problem started. So my experience with Transit Commission it has been very different from what I had envisioned that it would be. All of these plans that I had or sort of, you know, hopes and dreams of, of the change I can make for our community, um, especially focusing on folks who are on lower income, focusing on para-transpo for, you know, para-equity. <clears throat> those, those things kind of, unfortunately, were forced off of my off of my plate simply because it then became all of the problems with the LRT. And so my 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 experience has been enlightening with respect to the inner workings of City Hall and the politics there with the Watson Club. And of course we know that all commissions and committees are stacked with Watson Club members. Um, they have a majority. And, and the lack of transparency and accountability. And that's really, I think, been um, a light has been shone on, on those two very serious issues, the lack of transparency and accountability with, with the LRT and the problems with the LRT. I spend my time fighting for morsels of information when I wish I could be spending my time making transit better for those who who have no other option but to use public transit.
1: You've been a critic, a very vocal critic, of the city's role in public transit. You've been that advocate. In light of the most recent developments with, say, the train derailment. Two derailments. Well, the, the multiple. <laughs> uh, or, and not to mention any of the other issues that have plagued the LRT since opening. I just wonder if, is there a way, you, from your point of view, How did we get here?
4: Oh, wow. That's a much more complex question, I think, than most people realize. So it's kind of a, let's put it this way. It's a multifaceted problem. So when it comes to transit as a whole, so both the bus and and the LRT, I think that the core, the root of the problem is that OC Transpo views public transit as a business rather than what it is, which is a public service. And so when you view a public service such as public transit as a business and you treat it as such, then you are losing, you're losing the forest for the trees, right? Public transit is there to create equity amongst people within society, right? Not everyone can afford a car. Not everyone can, you know, walk to all of their destinations, but public transit is there so that you can get to the destinations that you need to get to, even if you don't have a ton of money to do so. Unfortunately, in Ottawa, we have some of the highest public transit fares in North America. And while we do arguably have a, you know, a system, a public transit system, you know, um, uh, a bus system, or we used to anyways, uh, (laughs) that would provide service to almost everybody in the city, and in, compar- in comparison to places that I've lived, like I've lived in two cities in Florida, for example, where the public transit was almost non-existent. Everyone just walked on the side of the highway, which is frightening. You know, when we're charging higher fares, then that argument for public transit being an equalizer and providing equity to those who can't afford it, those high fares no longer support the role of public transit. Now, when you're talking about LRT... That's where things get a little bit complex. You have to go all the way back to when the public-private partnership was developed and signed with RTG, which is the Rideau Transit Group, which is a consortium of companies. Public-private partnerships, on the face of them, are supposed to benefit the public interest, so through municipalities, because you're able to get a project that is so expensive too expensive for the municipality to to front the costs on their own. You're able to get that project built a lot faster than you would without taking on serious amounts of debt because the costs are shared with the private part of the partnership, right? With a private company, in this case, RTG. Two inherent issues with P3s, public-private partnerships, is that, number one, there's a lack of transparency when it comes to uh, documents and decisions, right? Because the documents belong to the private part, of the partnership, and they consider those to be their property. So you cannot A-tip them. You can't freedom of information request them because they're considered confidential business information. That's problem number one. Problem number two is is that when it comes to accountability for issues, accountability and and, and the associated concept that goes with it, which is risk, is spread out amongst both the municipality, so the public part of the partnership, and the private entity, RTG. And so the point of a P3 is so that the risk is never downloaded to the public, right? To the actual voting public, those of us who are paying, everyone's paying for it in their taxes. And so those are sort of some of the problems. But with the RT, with RTG and with this P3, absolutely the risk has been downloaded to the public, meaning those who are using the system and are paying for the system through their taxes, because now we're having serious safety concerns. Of course, we've got a 30-year contract with RTG for maintenance, which is $5 million a month, which is something like $1.6 billion over 30 years. That's a lot of money. There's myriad issues with with the, with the a P3. And P3s very rarely actually work out to be in the best interests of the public, not the municipality, but the public themselves, who are the actual ones paying for it through their taxes. And keeping in mind, if you live in Ottawa, you paid for this system three times over in your municipal taxes, in your provincial taxes, and in your federal taxes, because all three levels of government put money into the pot for this system.
1: And would you have any recommendations on how to fix these issues?
4: You know, when it comes to the the clear engineering and safety issues with respect to the LRT, my my suggestion and, and my recommendation is that that line remains shut down indefinitely until there can be an end to end independent public inquiry safety investigation, so that we can and the report is completely public and everyone gets to see it because we all paid for it. You know, after a safety investigation has been completed and and we feel comfortable putting humans and support animals back on this this line, I really truly believe that we need to just kick RTG to the curb. RTG, RTM, whatever they're calling themselves these days, so just so people understand, RTG is the consortium that built the um, line one of the confederation line of the LRT. RTM is Rideau Transit Maintenance. They are a wholly owned subsidiary of RTG. They are essentially, they are the same people. Like there's no difference uh, of, of any of this. So just so under people understand, when I say I use RTG and RTM um, all the time in different ways, they're all the same people. But RTM needs to go. It has, we keep having to, you know, there's, the problems are continuing. It's not the same problem all the time that we can tell. It's new problems all the time, which I think is more concerning. I mean, based on the reports from the Transportation Safety Board, the letters from the Transportation Safety Board that have come out recently, to me, I'm not an expert. You know, I'm just a member of the public. I don't have an engineering degree. But to me, it seems as though either RTM doesn't know what they're doing and doesn't know what they're looking for when they're looking at these trains that are having problems. For example, the the derailment uh, in August, the letter that just came out from the Transportation Safety Board stating that there were problems with that train five hours before it actually derailed. And the technician just sort of released a brake caliper and was like, you're good to go and didn't and didn't inspect it. I mean, that just boggles my mind. So it's either they, they don't know what they're doing and don't know what to look for, or they don't care and they're not doing it. And either way, neither of those things is acceptable. And RTM, RTG, whatever they choose to call themselves... They need to go. We need to end the contract, bite the bullet and bring it in-house where we can hire our own experts, our own rail experts who answer to us.
1: So the Rideau Transit Group, Rideau Transit Maintenance, whichever they want to call themselves, the, the group finally agreed to bring in an independent safety expert to assess the current state of the light rail transit. Oh, they didn't,
4: They didn't agree to it. Oh, no, they didn't agree to it. They got told. They got okay. told by motion at Transit Commission. But yeah, I just wanted to make that clear. They didn't agree to that. Okay. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so what what happened was was that a motion was put forward for an independent safety, impartial safety expert to be brought in to evaluate the return to service plan that RTG has put, will put forward. So it's not a, an evaluation. This is really important that I think people don't necessarily and it's it's a bit intricate, but it's not an overall end-to-end. Evaluation of the safety of the LRT. It's a very narrow scope. This company, independent company, is going to be brought in to review the return to service plan by RTG. So it's not it's not a it's not an indictment of the entire system. It's literally just what are their plans to return to service um, after the derailment. And so I think that's a really important distinction that should be made.
1: The outgoing general manager of transit services, John Manconi. Do you see this as uh, is this sort of say the rats are leaving the ship or
4: I wouldn't put it that strongly. Look, you know when it comes to the problems with the LRT and lack of transparency and and perhaps not necessarily sharing all the information that they possibly could with with Transit Commission, I cannot blame one single individual. There's lots of blame to go around, right? we don't know how much political pressure has been put on OC Transpo senior management by the mayor and others. We don't know um, how much OC Transpo is being told by RTG. Keeping in mind that RTG, think of it this way. RTG is like when you have a general contractor who is helping you, who is renovating your house. So you're renovating your whole house and you have a general contractor who's overseeing all the subcontractors, the plumbers, the electricians, stuff like that. That is exactly what RTG is. They're a general contractor. They themselves admit that they have zero expertise when it comes to railways. They hire the experts. So, for example, Alstom is the subcontractor, and Alstom workers are subcontracted by RTG to deal with the trains. OC Transpo, and therefore Transit Commission or counselors or transit commissioners cannot ask Alstom any questions directly. All questions, I can't even ask RTG questions directly unless they attend transit commission, and they are under no obligation to do so. I have to ask all of my questions through OC Transpo and if senior management, and if if RTG has not provided them that information, they can't answer the question. And so, I can't blame one individual person. I mean, I, I think it's no secret that Mr. Mancone and I have disagreed on many an occasion, but I think it would be I think it would be disingenuous of me and wrong of me to to blame one single individual. I will say this though. The fish rots from the head. And in my in this and in this case, the head is is Mayor Watson if Mayor Watson wanted transparency and accountability and, and, and if he even wanted public trust in our, in our LRT, he could apply his political will. I mean, it's not hard. He's doing it now to keep things, you know, keep things tightly under wraps as far as I'm concerned. Um, he could apply that political will for the good of the public. He's just choosing not to. And so at some point, If you're gonna point some fingers, all of my fingers are gonna be pointed at Jim Watson.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks, bye. Bye. What's your name? Zainab. Zainab. Mohamed. Oh, and how long does it take for you to get home?
2: Well, I'm originally from Toronto. So um, today, usually it takes me about 20 minutes, but today it's been taking me almost double the time. So about 40 minutes. Oh wow. Yeah, and I'm coming from U Ottawa to my home in Alta
1: Vista normally take the train? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so now it takes double the time. It takes double the time, yes. Oh so, uh, wow. Do you miss Toronto?
2: <laughs> yeah, sometimes I do, yeah. Because the transit system, I mean, I don't want to get into the politics, but the transit system is, I would say, much more efficient. Um, I've only been here a few weeks and it's not a good thing to see when I first come to the city and the train is out of uh, service. Um, so... Yeah, it's a challenge, but what can we do,
0: right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you very much. Absolutely, no
1: problem. Jeff Leeper is an Ottawa City Councillor who brought forward a motion last week in the council meeting to ensure council meets sooner over the OC Transpo issue, as well as have the Ottawa Transit Commission meet more often. His motion was defeated by the mayor and a small number of councillors who voted against the majority. I spoke with Jeff Leeper, and this is what he had to say. Well, hello, Jeff. Hi. I th- uh, thank you for taking the time to meet with me, sir.
5: Entirely my pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for the interest.
1: Can you tell me about the motion that you put forward last week?
5: That seems like a month ago. Uh, I...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at our,
5: our last city council meeting, um, I had put forward a motion that would have seen uh, city council Council meet for the purpose of discussing the LRT crisis that we're in uh, within a couple of days. That would have seen the Transit Commission, which oversees more directly the operations of OC Transpo, meet every two weeks, as well as um, uh, encourage a a briefing from the city's lawyers at the earliest possible uh, opportunity.
1: And so that was declined, of course, I, I will say.
5: Yeah, it was a, it was a, procedural, um, a procedural battle. Uh, the LRT was not on the agenda of our city council meeting. In order to bring that motion forward and have it pass, I would have required, um, t- uh, sorry, three quarters of members uh, to vote for it. Uh, I needed 18 votes. I only got 16, and so it didn't pass. But it was a really strong majority of councillors who chose to support that. And were it not for the procedural bits that probably would have passed.
1: Now, the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson, continues to say that there is nothing wrong, that we've only experienced a few bad weeks. What would you say to the mayor if he would listen?
5: I think, you know, the, the mayor has certainly acknowledged that uh, the train is, 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 uh, not working well right now, and that's that's good. I mean, he doesn't have a choice. We're not running the train right now. Um, I, I do feel that the mayor is being somewhat tone deaf at the moment. Uh, I think we have to recognize that the situation is serious. The public has lost confidence in our LRT system. That loss of confidence in the LRT has trickled down into almost anything that city council touches, all of OC Transpo, all stemming from the issues of the of the train that we're having. Um, I, I don't believe that the mayor is not taking it seriously. I, I do believe that the mayor is, is going to do whatever's in his power in order to try to uh, fix the current situation. But I, I think the mayor needs to really take to heart what he's hearing from Ottawa residents with respect to uh, the need for much greater transparency much better communications um and and for more empathy with what riders are going through right now um you know in in the west end we're fairly fortunate replacing the train with buses is is doable but in the east end the uh the stations are no longer served by uh, directly connected roads. So in the West End, Scott and Albert Street, big wide arterials continue to serve all of our stations. And so the the bus getting from, say, Tunney's Pasture Station to Parliament can actually be a little bit quicker depending on how much it's moving in uh, in, in total travel time. But in the East End, in order to get to all the different stations, it's it it's having to make turn upon turn upon turn onto roads that are not necessarily designed to move transit rapidly. And so those riders are facing, you know, an hour and a half of delay. I was talking to one rider on a bus the other day, and it, it's going to take him two hours to get out to Orleans. I, I hope the mayor is more empathetic than he sounds at the moment. Hmm.
1: Do you have any recommendations on how, how the city should fix these issues?
5: It's, it's really tough without even knowing exactly what's causing the issues. Um, there comes a point at which you wonder if you just have to take every piece of that system apart and make sure put it back together again, the way it's supposed to be and and there are absolutely questions as to whether um you know some of the failures that we've seen are the result of uh, problems we didn't know we had with respect to how the the train has been put together. There are some issues we've been having that are um, more clearly associated with uh, a lack of maintenance. Uh, occasionally, we're finding design flaws that are relatively easy fixes. We're discovering software flaws that can be fixed. But when um, when as on August. Eighth, an axle bearing that is is not visible is is melting down and that's not caught by the company that is operating this train you know that that leads me to wonder what else they haven't caught which is why i don't know when the train is going to be back in service um you know it's 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 virtually certain that this train will not go back into service until there's been a nuts to bolts examination of everything to ensure that it's safe.
1: So uh, in regard to the independent safety experts or uh, the assessment that's about to take place, uh, what do you think will come out of this assessment?
5: What I hope will come out is they will identify any of the problems that we don't know we have. Uh, You know, the known problems are fixable. Uh, What scares a lot of people is the problems that we don't know we have yet. Uh, So I I would hope that they will identify the lurking problems in the system, if there are any, uh, recommend fixes for those, um, and then oversee the fix to ensure that those are done properly so that we can certify the train as safe to go back into service again. Because we need the train. Uh, as we're discovering right now, we cannot replace that train with bus service. And
1: is there anything else you want to say? Wow. Well, I got, you know,
5: it's, I could talk probably for hours about the train because when it opened two years ago, um, I, I can't tell you how excited I was by the train. Um, And, I'm a regular rider. I'm, I'm on the train multiple times a week. Um, and there are aspects of the train that have just, you know, they've uh, improved my quality of life. Uh, I've become a, an e-scooter rider. I have my own e-scooter. And and rolling my scooter to the train and then taking it uh, taking it from a stop downtown to wherever it is I'm going, it's just changed the geography of the city for me. It's so convenient and it's so fast and it's so comfortable. That I hope that I'm it's just I'm that much more disappointed that we are where we are today because the the promise of the train, um, you know, for those of us who are who are fortunate to live in in close proximity to it is so great. And so the disappointment is is that much more profound when it's not working Um I have to believe that we will get the train working again. Uh we we don't have a choice. Uh you know, council is engaged in a discussion with um uh with the lawyer on the file uh to talk about what the options are. Um you know, we're not going to discuss legal strategies in a, in a public forum, but everything is on the table and we're looking at all of it to to try to figure out how we can get ourselves um uh into a place where we have a train system that works. Um but it's it is you know, going to be fixable one way or the other. Um, we're not going to scrap LRT. Uh, we're not going to pull this system out and, and build a new one. This system has to work. We're probably in bed with this partner um, for the long term. And I, I just know that everybody at the City of Ottawa and all the City Council is focused on you know, getting this to work and then reassuring the residents of Ottawa that we are 100% confident that it is safe to take the train and start rebuilding that ridership
1: well thank you very much for all your time today jeff davian entirely my pleasure thank you hi what what's your name margaret margaret and uh, how long does it take for you to get home
3: about an hour and a half an hour 15 and would it be any different if the trains were running actual well, sorry that's what the train's running now it's a little
6: over an hour, about an hour 45 Wow. yeah so I, I work near the airport so yeah oh so a lot longer now yeah
1: Uh, I hope you get home safe. Me too. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Emma Williams is our science editor here at the Fulcrum. Here she is now. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you?
3: I'm well, thank you.
1: So what's new in science this week?
7: So this week in science, I spoke with Adam Brown, who is a professor here at the University of Ottawa within the Department of Biology. And today we spoke about science communication.
1: Uh, well, what is science communication?
7: So, science communication occurs when you speak about science to a non-scientist.
1: And do you have to be a scientist to, to talk about science?
7: Short answer, no. You don't have to be a scientist. You just have to be speaking about science.
1: Oh, cool. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Thank you. Okay, so, can I get you to say and spell your name?
8: Okay, it's Adam Oliver Brown. I'm going to make a little coffee noise for a second here. Yeah,
3: you're kind of like Canada's Bill Nye.
8: (laughs) Well, um, I think we we do have David Suzuki still, so I can't go ahead and say that I'm as much of a superstar, but uh, it would be nice to, you know, not to be famous necessarily, but to Mm. have that outreach, you know, to have that ability to connect with so many people.
3: Yeah, definitely. Can you define science communication? Sure.
8: Uh, science communication is the communication of science to non-specialist audiences. Okay. And so, so, I can actually you know, add a few more details that the, sci- the communication that we teach science students to communicate in their professional degrees is known as scientific communication. So, you know, lab reports, writing a, an article, giving a seminar, talking to scientists is known as scientific communication, when the communication is towards a specialist. Okay. When the communication is towards a non-specialist, it's known as science communication. Now, it can come from a scientist, but it doesn't have to. Science communication can happen from uh, an individual on the internet, it can come from a teacher, it can come from a journalist. So it's really more about the audience. Who you're speaking to defines the word. And of course, which audience you're speaking to and which kind of communication you're doing will determine which is the right format to use. Before the, the world is changing rapidly these days and a big part of that change involves media communications. so. Um, science communication is now a thing, and I say that because it's a relatively young field as far as uh, academic fields go. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also a relatively young career uh, for people that didn't really exist much prior to um, a decade or so ago, except for a few big players like Bill Nye and Dave mm-hmm. Suzuki and, and a few others. But apart from them, the, you know, there hasn't really been this opportunity for individuals, which is now happening more and more. So, because science is becoming increasingly important in society for environment, technology, health, you know, all these reasons, it's very important increasingly that the public is aware of science and can make decisions based on scientific evidence. And the best way for the public to get that information is through an effective, communicator, uh, an effective science communicator. How can we be scientists in society, recognizing that society is changing fast right now, particularly with communication? Um, that, you know, internet media and social media are really changing the way that we communicate with the world and it's empowering individuals to do so. Now, one of the problems with that is that there are a lot of individuals feeling empowered to say a whole bunch of and nonsense out on the (laughs) internet, right? And so that's making it challenging in this modern world of instant communication from absolutely anybody on the planet for people to know what's true and what's not. And if we're thinking about science, science is very important for society, and it's important for people to know what science is so that they can make decisions for themselves about things that are related to science, so like the environment, if it's climate change or pesticides or whatever, or if it's, you know, technologies, like your green vehicles or GMOs, if it's public health or personal health, which we have certainly seen come into focus in the past year and a half, where... Very important for people to be able to make decisions not based on evidence and not based on some kind of internet nonsense, right? And so the need is there for students to be able to communicate science to the public. Because if they don't, the public's gonna increasingly get their science from a bunch of charlatans and snake oil salespeople who are just peddling their nonsense and it makes it very difficult for society to function. Because, I mean, we could obviously stick on the pandemic topic. You, you've seen, presumably, some of the chaos that's emerged because of miscommunication, because of pseudoscience, because of anti-scientific rhetoric that is making it very difficult for the science to do what it needs to do to help society, right? Now, we could also, t- I mean, that's a vaccination issue in part, but we could t- say the same thing about climate change. You could say the same thing about GMOs, You know, all of these sort of science topics that are seriously misunderstood by the public are creating very big problems for society. And not to say that scientists are the solution, but they need to be part of the discussion. They need to be part of that conversation. And in the past, it's been very difficult for scientists to engage in popular media and public discussions because they're not trained to speak that way we train scientists to, to communicate their scientific information in a very specialized manner right and we teach you to speak with the jargon to reference the, you know, the facts all of the, the, the concepts, the procedures, the, the statistics, the details, all of that kind of stuff is very important for the mechanics of the specialized fields of science and not very good ways to communicate to the public, because the public is not familiar with that language and it's sort of talking to them at different points of interest. And so of course on one level it's important to speak to the public in a language that they understand, it's making it accessible to them, it's important to not consider it dumbing down, because if you start to speak speak condescendingly to people, then they don't like to hear that either. So it's more of a dialogue and using language that they know and use, as well as to speak about um, aspects that are relevant to your audience's values. So we tend to think as scientists that whatever we think is important, everybody else will also think is important. And that's not necessarily the case. Different groups in society have different values, whether they're social values, uh, moral values, political values, there are certain values that are of interest to people, and you have to speak to people as it relates to their values, so that they will see the importance of what you're talking about as it relates to them. Not as it relates to you, the scientist, right? So as an example, you know, if I'm talking about climate change to a family, I'm not going to talk about 300, 400 parts per million and, <laughs> you know, and these uh, you know, the greenhouse gases and the albedo effect and, you know, infrared uh, heat and all whatever, all of those kinds of science details would be just completely irrelevant. It would be talking about their family and the future for their children and the kind of world that they want to live in, right? So that's talking to them on their about their values and something that they think is going to be important. And so then they can agree more readily with you because they can see why it's important to them as well.
7: So you've worked with some documentaries, some TV shows, mm-hmm. other media people. So I'm wondering what it looks like to be on the other side of
8: there. Um, it's exciting. It's fun. It's a, it's a different pace. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot of really kind of fast moving stuff where everything happens all at once and then you have to sit around and wait for a couple hours while pe- the crew set up lights and microphones. Um, the expression there is hurry up and wait. Mm. Um, so hurry up and wait means you've got to be ready anytime but most of the time you'll just be sitting around chit-chatting chit-chatting with each other. I am also able to pull in collaborators from uh, these all these creative fields. Currently I'm making a documentary For my classes, one in zoology and one in animal behavior, I have a writer who's a very popular writer for Canadian television media. He wrote for Rick Mercer. I don't know if you know Rick Mercer. He used to do his Rick Mercer Report. Um, My friend uh, Richard Perry is the guitarist for a band called Arcade Fire. I don't know if you know that band from Montreal. They're a very big rock band. He's gonna be doing the soundtrack for my my documentary. So, you know, I think um, that to be exciting for students that they'll see that as being cool to some extent uh that these people who are you know big players in that field are willing to participate with me on creating something educational for for the students um it's it's a lot of fun and uh you know you do it because i do it because it's fun and i do it because it's i think it promotes good learning but It's also, you know, it's exciting because it's not, it's a little bit more interesting than just the, you know, textbooks and classrooms and, Hmm. you know, and and exams and that kind of stuff.
7: Well, thank you so much for meeting with me. My pleasure. (laughs) It was very nice meeting with you and talking
8: to you Good. Yes, it was my pleasure.
1: Now it's time for another installment of Sanjita Says.
7: September 10th marked World Suicide Prevention Day. Today on Sanjita Says, I will be speaking about my journey with mental health struggles and living with depression and anxiety. If you find yourself relating, I encourage you to please get the help you need and speak to someone today. I typically enjoy summer, a cherished break from school. Yet this year, my summer was kind of a bummer. It was a summer I finally confronted my deteriorating mental health. Though the official diagnoses of my mental health are a part of the series of unfortunate events that plagued my 2021 summer, it is also an ongoing act of neglect on my part. Truth be told, part of me thought that I was faking it in vain. Despite telling no one, somehow my convoluted brain convinced myself that I was making up my struggles for attention. I had imposter syndrome. How could I, peppy, bubbly, outgoing me, be clinically depressed or anxious? It felt like an oxymoron. A naive part of me believed that my struggles with anxiety and depression would just go away with time if I pretended that they simply didn't exist. Fake it until you make it, right? But I tried that for years. Turns out, it wasn't a phase. The first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. I tried to shove everything under the rug, but eventually the rug got lumpy with baggage and I tripped, fell, and landed on my face. Thus, I finally sought help and ding, 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 it was official. Being diagnosed with severe anxiety and depression was not easy to hear. Nevertheless, it did help to have a licensed professional telling me that my struggles are real, valid, and not a figment of my imagination. Truth be told, the imposter syndrome didn't end as soon as I received my diagnoses. I'm not convinced it ever does. When I didn't have a name for what I was feeling, I didn't know how to talk about it, so I didn't well now i have a name but i still don't have the words to explain how i feel i'll ghost all my friends for a week or two and then have to come back and act like nothing happened or go on a little apology tour where i'll say i'm sorry this is not personal but it will probably happen again the worst part is when i can feel a depressive episode encompassing me and yet there's nothing i can do about it a panic attack is the same way both are all consuming and isolating All I want to do in those moments is be by myself, which is easier said than done. The thing is, I can't put my life on hold when these things happen. People have expectations. They expect texts back, hangouts, and for you to be you. That's where the imposter syndrome comes in. Mental health is different from physical health in that you have to actually tell other people you're unwell. That's not something I have in me quite yet, being an advocate for my own health. For example, if my leg is broken and it's in a cast, no one is going to ask me to come dancing. And if they do and I say no, they'll be like, yeah, that makes sense. When I'm in a depressive episode, if someone asks me to come dancing, I may want to say no, but feel obligated to say yes, because usually I would go dancing. I might think that if I get out there, I'll feel better, but I'm not really in the right headspace to be going out at all. And I only really said yes because I don't want to let anyone down or let them know that anything is wrong. So maybe I go and dread it the whole time. Or maybe I find it in me to say no. Sometimes people will try to convince you to come anyways. Please come, they'll say. It'll be fun. You don't need to stay long. Once you get there, you'll love it. You usually love dancing. I don't want to say I'm in a bad spot with my mental health because I don't want them to pity me. Anyways, how would I even prove it? Unlike the broken leg, there's no cast or band-aid to show people that you're unwell. And that is how my fall is going. While summer was a series of appointments that solidified that something is wrong, fall is the season of learning how to live with it. I still am struggling to communicate how I'm feeling and set boundaries, but I'm working on it. That's why they call it a mental health journey. What's important to remember is that mental health is not something we can ignore, not in ourselves, nor in our peers. End the days of bottling things up, suffering in silence or waiting for things to get bad enough. So, if you believe that you or someone you may know may be struggling, Get the help you need today.
1: John Jarrett is an Ottawa-based artist. His work depicts neighborhoods and heritage homes around the city. I met with him earlier this week. Here's what he had to say. Hello, John. How are you?
9: I'm just fine, thank you. And
1: uh, you're a University of Ottawa grad, aren't you?
9: I am, yes. I graduated in uh, 1977.
1: I mean, what was your degree?
9: It was a PhD in educational administration.
1: And how long have you been painting?
9: I've been painting now for just a little over 30 years. I started painting the year I retired. It's been my retirement project.
1: And uh, what's your medium?
9: I paint largely in oils. I tried all the other media, but uh, when I settled on oils, I thought this is for me, and I've stuck with it ever since. And can you tell
1: me a little bit about this series?
9: Well, I'm a long-time resident of Old Ottawa East, and I find it a perfectly uh, delightful community, and so I decided that I would try to depict it, and I have spent a couple of years now painting various little homes and scenes from around the neighbourhood, which I love very much.
1: And what is it about Ottawa that inspires you so much?
9: Well, it's such a livable neighborhood. It's got uh, just about everything one could want. There are many quite modest but very attractive little homes, and it's very family-oriented, so it has uh, an appeal on many fronts. So why is it
1: important to preserve this neighborhood and preserve these in your paintings?
9: Well, I personally think that uh, this is the kind of community that serves it's uh, residents very well. It's uh, got variety. It's got a uh, uh, sort of a homey feel about it. It's very livable, and it's something that uh, we should treasure and work at uh, preserving over the years.
1: And is there anything you've learned about the city in your work?
9: Well, this is my hometown, so I guess I uh, have a good feel for Ottawa. And uh, I think that uh, it's a pretty hard place to beat when it comes to finding a livable home and a a very compatible uh, environment to live in.
1: And uh, what would you say to anybody who's just getting started out in painting right now?
9: Well, if you're at all interested in painting, I'd suggest that you just get yourself some paints and uh, some canvases and give it a try. And I suggest that you find a place that's offering courses in uh, painting, perhaps like the Ottawa School of Art. And like anything else, if uh, you're really interested and you keep plugging away, you'll discover that uh, over time you begin to produce things that are really quite satisfying.
1: And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say?
9: <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I just say that uh, please come and visit all Ottawa East if you want to see one of Ottawa's prime neighborhoods you will find it perfectly delightful we have the canal on one side we have the beautiful rito river on the other we've got parks and uh, as i say the most attractive neighborhoods uh, that you can imagine
1: and where can people find your paintings if they want them
9: oh well they can give me a shout i uh, used to be represented at uh, a local gallery but the gallery ran out of business so i'm sort of on my own now but uh, you can look me up and uh, give me a shout if you're at all interested. Uh, I guess you can find me on uh, the web somewhere. I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: we'll, we'll provide a link here on our website. Thank you very much for talking to me, John.
9: Oh, you're very welcome, Damien. Thank you.
1: Here with the latest edition of What's Happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum's editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutille.
6: the football team Damien who was in Kingston last weekend they took on the Queen Golden Gales it was not a good game on the field they were dominated the Gales won 30 to 7 but that was not the full story they had a ceremony at the, the beginning of the game and it was a real tearjerker honestly and they took out Francis Perron's jersey two of the GGS players they, they took it on the field they dropped it where he would have lined up lined up for the kickoff Campbell Fair, the kicker, he waited until the play clock expired. Once it reached zero, the ref threw the, the flag on the field and the Gales, they declined the penalty, which was really a nice moment of sportsmanship. And then two other GG's players, they took the jersey, took it off the field, and they really laid their fallen brother to rest. It was a real emotional ceremony. With that said, the GG's will be back in action this Saturday. It's a panda game. They're facing uh, the Ravens at TD Place. It's sold out. There will be parties, so everybody stay safe, please. Kickoff for that one goes at 12 p.m. Moving on to rugby. The women's rugby team was in Quebec City last weekend. They played the Laval Rougeard. They lost 18-10. to 10. They were up going into the half. Sadly, they could not hold on. They were playing the defending champs, and they really showed them how it's done, um, but with that said, the GGs are still the second best team in our sect, in my opinion, and they're going to be facing some weaker opponents coming up here. In fact, they're playing Concordia this weekend, Saturday at 11 a.m., and they're going to look for redemption against the Stingers. On the men's side, the GGs were a little bit more successful. Uh, they went into half with the Montreal Carabans tied at 12-12, uh, and in the second half, they totally took over. They took the lead, never looked back, and beat Montreal 26-12. The women's ultimate frisbee team... They were in a tournament to qualify for Nationals. Unfortunately, they weren't able to qualify. They lost twice to Queens. We're able to beat Carlton, so that is a positive. They will have another chance to qualify for Nationals this weekend. So wishing them luck. They're going to be in Belleville. Now, finally, I want to talk about the lacrosse team. They also lost to Queens. Um, Seems like there's a theme here. They lost 14-6 on home field at Gigi's Field. They'll be back at Gigi's Field on Saturday to face the Bishop Gators. The men's rugby team will also be facing Bishop. Uh, That's tonight uh, in Lenoxville. So that's your sports update, Damien. Take me away.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutille. Jasmine wrote a script for him, but he didn't need it. Thank you to Amir Benjamin and Desiree Nikbarjim. Thank you very much to Sanjita Rashid. Thank you very much to Emma Williams. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show I'm your host, Damian Piper See you next week